Business, as usual, is certainly over. Um, but 11FS's Benjamin Enser and Sarah Kachansky have put together a comprehensive report analyzing the short, medium, and long-term impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on financial services. They outline how banks, investment management firms, and insurance companies will need to adjust to meet the new demands of, well, let's face it, a new normal. You can read the report right now for free at info.11fs.com forward slash COVID-19. That's info.11fs.com forward slash COVID-19. No hyphen. Alrighty, let's start the show. From 11FS, I'm Simon Taylor, and this is Fintech Insider News. This week we bring you, we ask why is it so hard for digital challengers to stand out in the UK as RBS closes bow, big banks book 50 billion against bad loans in the wake of corona, and a roundup of the more international stories this week. All this and much, much more on today's new show. Welcome to episode 425 of Fintech Insider. I'm Simon Taylor and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, the one and only Sarah Kachansky. How are you doing today, Sarah? Hi, Simon. I am good, thank you. I am very much looking forward to a long weekend. Uh, It's a bank holiday weekend uh, here in the UK, for those who don't know. We get a little bit out of sync, actually. The rest of Europe had their bank holiday at the beginning of the week and we thought, nah, we'll have it at the end of the week because we wanted to coincide with VE Day. There's a very there's a very peculiarly British fact for you there. Indeed. And if you didn't have peculiar British facts, now you do. Um, so as you're enjoying your podcast, there's there's some uh, value you can take away in, on top of the fintech. Um, as is becoming the normal now, we are joined remotely by some amazing guests making some fintech insider debuts. We have Matt Sattler, who is head of HSBC Data and Innovation Labs. Matt, how are you doing, sir? Yeah, doing well. How about yourself? Pretty well, thank you. I can see sunshine and I can see a lot of fintech stories, so lots to get into. Um, Making some welcome return visits, uh, we have Bailey Kusar, who's CEO and founder at Toucan. Bailey, how are you doing? Hello, I'm good. I'm excited to be here in my my spare room. (laughs) We're excited to have you back, although uh, usually it was in the studio, but spare room's fine too. Uh, And we're joined by James Butland, who's VP of the UK over at Airwallex. James, how are you doing, sir? Very well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. No, no. Uh, thank you for joining. Uh, let's get started. Uh, the first story this week, uh, if you follow FinTech, I don't think you could have missed it. This was about RBS closing their digital challenger called Bo. And Bo, of course, was a part of the bank's strategy to compete with fast-growing startups such as Monzo and Starling, but had a bit of a sluggish start and had failed to impress investors. Um, but the CEO, Alison Rose, said that the bank had learned lessons from this short-lived experiment. Uh, she went on to say, Bo hasn't failed. We've made a decision which is a prudent decision at this point. We will apply a disciplined view in terms of our approach to innovations, testing, and learning. RBS also said that Bow would be scrapped as a brand, but some of its technology would be merged with one of its other digital brands, Metal. Uh, The bank posted pre-tax profits of £519 million for the quarter, down from a billion the previous year, but RBS remains, of course, 62% owned by taxpayers following the bailout in 2008 crisis. Um, Sarah, I know you've been in some publications this week talking about it. Um, Do you want to just take us through what your thoughts were when you saw this headline? Yeah, sure. I mean, first of all, I wasn't surprised. Um, It should be pointed out that Bo actually never managed to launch. So it was in beta, but it never actually managed to get properly out there to a full public launch. Um, It was always an interesting strategy of NatWest or RBS as it was then, um, to have 
two digital brands going at once. You know, this is a very crowded, competitive market. You have to do something to stand out. Not only did Bo not really do that, in fact, a lot of its functionality was a lot more limited than uh, many of the sort of digital-only banks that we're used to seeing here in this country, um, but it also had sort of almost competition from metal. Not that they said the same customer base, but if you see NatWest's digital brand and there's more than one, um, that's going to cause some customer confusion. Um, so I think I think overall, it, it didn't ever really feel like a starter to me despite the fact that we have seen some successful uh, digital brands from incumbent banks elsewhere, this one just didn't didn't really feel like it was ever going to make it. Mm, interesting. Uh, Bailey, would you agree with that? RIP, Bo. Uh, it's very sad. Um, yeah, no, I think um, I, I agree. You know, it only got 11,000 customers um, using the product. And understandably, you know, it's in beta. They were testing some stuff, but for a beta product, they made a big splash at launch. So it does feel like a little bit of a sad day, closing the door on Bo. Um, yeah, maybe it will return at some point. I think it's it's a weird one because with some of these big banks, um, part of their strength is that they have a, a really big, uh, renowned brand uh, that consumers trust. So launching these new digital brands um, if, unless you really put a lot of weight behind it, feels kind of like a side project, and that's that's never a good, never a good thing. Mm, interesting. Uh, there's something about yeah, uh, you can't uh, you can't half commit. You've got to go kind of all the way with with a lot of this stuff. That's an interesting concept. I mean, Matt, though, uh, innovation in large organisations uh, it has some challenges, surely. But there's a lot that can be done. Are there lessons that we can learn from this? I think so. I think the the first thing that comes to mind is what does it mean to be a digital bank? And so, yes, there's a big um, rush when you see companies like Starling Bank, Monzo, Revolut. And it's certainly no secret customer expectations have changed. Um, everyone is looking for instantaneous uh, payments, um, now even multi-currencies, digital wallets. It's no secret that we as, as a society have changed. But what I think gets missed a lot when it comes to large organizations trying to transform and compete, whether it be you know bringing on a new digital front or trying to transform themselves, is the infrastructure and the integrations to do it. Um, I can certainly speak from experience and being in the trenches of transforming a, a large organization when you're trying to integrate legacy technology stacks from a data integration, from a technology integration, to then the front-end customer, it is a very long journey, and it's certainly not easy, even with all the, the, the greatest tools out there. There's so many synergies that need to come together. So I think the expectations of transforming quickly to becoming a digital bank when you're sitting on a lot of tech debt, legacy tech debt, is a massive undertaking. And so the the expectations of when that can be successful has to be managed. No, that's a great point, Matt. I think what's interesting about this, though, is my understanding, at least, is that both Metal and Bo, to, to Bailey's point, part of the reason I think they were new brands was because they were trying to get away from some of the tech debt and have a lower cost operating model where they could execute faster, like a lot of the startups who can be making releases 10 to 40 times a day in their production pipelines. So there was a desire to sort of almost uh, shield it from the mothership to a certain degree. Um, and it, you know, it, by the sounds of it, reusing some of 
the tech. Some of the tech may have succeeded, even if the brand and the proposition hadn't. And, and James, uh, you know, there's, there's some value here in having uh, modern digital architectures that are lower cost and that can be changed faster, surely, that, that there, there could be value gained from. Yes, absolutely. I think, I think with Bo uh, in particular, what Bailey was saying around, you know, the benefits of coming from a big bank such as RBS, you do have that, that press and that buzz and that PR around it. Um, and from what I've seen, they've just pivoted their product more to the SME banking side. This is just a startup pivoting. The difference is, you know, in the startup I work in, when we pivot, it's not big public news. But this, because they're connected to a bigger brand, it is then. So... Yeah, that's interesting. I was just going to say, um, James, I think it's interesting. They've they've sort of pivoted and also sort of not because metal already existed, right? But they've pivoted some of the tech towards it. And and um, I think, Sarah, to, to um, something that you were saying, um, we saw that Finn by Chase um, was there to compete with Chase in the US. And it was a retail proposition competing with what was a very strong retail brand. Is there something, because we've seen um, sort of uh, rumors in the press about um, Chase um, and JP Morgan now looking at doing a challenger sort of bank build in the United Kingdom, which is not a home market for them. So is there something about you can't compete with your yourself and, and would the organ, is there organ rejection or is it something else? Maybe it's a mix of things. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree on the sense that competing with yourself is really hard. So um, as somebody who spends a lot of time looking at a lot of different banks' apps, um, NatWest isn't that bad. I mean, there are banks in the UK with apps that are a hell of a lot worse. Um, so, you know, if you were an existing NatWest customer, there isn't um, a huge incentive to, to switch. Um, I do I do agree with the kind of the, the brand point, perhaps, that if um, Chase came to the UK and launched something that was um, as appealing, perhaps, as, you know, their Sapphire card in the US. I know that's not a, a bank, that's a credit card, but it has huge appeal. It has huge brand appeal. Um, there is certainly something to be said for bringing your brand to a market where it doesn't already exist. Um, if you look at what Goldman Sachs did with Marcus, they came to the UK, a market they didn't already they wouldn't have a retail presence in um, and have done very well off that. Um, I think I just want to go back to the point about um, bow and metal. Um, there's a couple of things there. I think um, they were, to me, again, just a slightly sort of different take on it rather than pivoting. It felt like they were dividing their resources somewhat. And actually, if you've got all these really clever people who know a lot about digital proposition design and information architecture and whatever, why haven't you got them working on the same thing? Why have you got them working on two things that are slightly the same and slightly different. Um, and I think also, you know, we, we kind of have to mention the fact that Bo was championed by Mark Bailey at RBS. Now, Mark Bailey left the business. Um, so I wonder if, if Bo somewhat lost its champion, if it lost, if it lost you know, its leadership, perhaps, as, as a project within the bank. Um, and that, that meant it maybe didn't, you know, uh, well, maybe the, the project lost its way. And I think there's something to be said for for uh, sponsorship leaving with, without question, Sarah. There's also something to be said for um, my understanding, and I, you know, I wasn't involved. I know some folks at 11FS were, but my understanding from what I can see in the press is that uh, Metal took that sort of prepaid card first approach, build the customers, generate traction, and also uh, was working in a sense where um, RBS at the time, now now West, had been through the um, BCR remedies process, where they were actively moving out of the SME segment, or, or you know 
were, were sort of paying people to take customers off them. So needed something in that space. So there was a real clear strategic rationale for it. Um, the strategic rationale for Bodo was always quite interesting. It was this, how do we play at this um, sort of uh, low-income segment of the market? How do we help them save? How do we help people really build a bit of a balance sheet, a personal balance sheet? And in times like this, actually, there's something to be said for that. So I don't know if Matt, what are your thoughts on, you know, what where do you think about the thesis versus the execution and is was there something in the thesis trying to trying to reach a new client base trying to target businesses and people that are potentially underserved is certainly a, a great thesis and trying to use technologies um, whether it be digital platforms whether it be ai whether it be big data in order to trying to reach a new client base is certainly a strategy worth exploring. Um, I do go back to, and, and, and you brought up the example on Bo and the splitting of resources as well. Um, but even within those resource pools, certainly have um, not close to, to Bo whatsoever. There's also the scarcity of these types of resources, the, the talent that can truly execute at the pace and at the expectations of where sponsors are, executive sponsors, which we know um, uh, have, have little patience. Everything is about the bottom line and the, and the ROI. So finding the right resources, and, and it's not just one or two you know, data engineers, data scientists in a corner. It's a team culture. It's, it's that ability to, to develop, iterate, and finding that blend. It, it's, it's its own formula and, and certainly a challenge. Matt, I absolutely love that point. Um, Jason Bates, who's our co-founder at 11FS, often says digital is a small team sport. And actually having those people who know how to work together, but that have that mix of skills that can execute. And I think there is something in the genesis here of like um, that team proving itself, but also being able to educate management that um, whilst it's great to have the, the five-year plan and the spreadsheets in place, actually the way you measure a startup is, is somewhat different. And you know the metrics you should be looking for are somewhat different. And you know, Bailey, this will be a subject near and dear to, to your heart um, with, with Tukin and everything you guys are doing. I mean, what have you found are the keys to be able to execute as a small business? You have different constraints um, compared to larger organizations. And do you think larger organizations can bring in that DNA and, and successfully execute? Yeah, I think it, it's tough. I, I, I've never worked in a big organization. I've only ever worked in startups. Uh, so I, I have only one side of the story. But it's certainly true in my experience that a small team, we're seven people at the moment, can execute a really large amount of um, stuff. So, you know, we can get product shipped very quickly. Um, and I'm not sure that kind of adding more money into that, you know, huge amounts more money would get things done that much more quickly. I think um, as you scale, it becomes more difficult for that to be the case. But right at the early stage, which is where Bo was, that's that's where actually having scarcity and having a small team actually works quite well, I think. Um, I think in big companies, it's very difficult because of those um, the, the split of priorities. You're looking at such a large number of things that you you need to do as a business. And this definitely could feel like a fun toy to play with in this on the side and I think the danger is there um, and, and you know Matt will probably know this much better than, than I do that if, if it's not seen as something that will, will actually be a strategic objective of the bigger business over the next five ten years the investment and the time just won't go into that um, and I think that's why startups generally win 
Mm, that's interesting. Um, I like that um, sort of the risk of it being innovation theater concept there, Bailey. I think that that's a real risk. And and that, I love that point about like that small team of talent. I mean, if you look at big bank procurement processes, it's often how much is this commodity role? How much is a data engineer? How much is a product manager? And it's sort of almost seeing them as commodities versus how good is this person? And can they build something from scratch? And, and that's not necessarily in the DNA. Um, and it's not in the decision making process. I mean, Matt, how do you deal with those challenges in a large organization? Yeah, and and I really to, to before I answer that, Bailey, I think you 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 nailed it. And in in the sense of these types of innovation has to be embedded in the corporate DNA and in in business models. It cannot be a technology experiment. It cannot be sitting in you know large technology organizations. It has to be fully integrated into business strategy. So if business strategy is taking into consideration data strategy, data strategy is taking into consideration your technology strategy, that's the only way that it can start to move the dial. And so to answer the the, the direct question, you, those executive sponsors that you have have to be as close to, if not C-suite level individuals who are making the decisions on investment who are making decisions on the customer base, the closer you are to those individuals that are making those five-year plans, although I couldn't agree more, the metrics of success have to be have to change. Um, but those individuals that do make those strategic investments, you have to be as close to those individuals in order to continue uh, that, that future investment into these organizations. Yeah, and, and just going back to that, I think, as I said, I never worked in a big company, so I'm, I'm completely... Uh, making assumptions here, but for me, having worked at very small, um, hungry startups, I was lucky enough to be part of um, Monzo's first six, seven months, right? And and actually, everyone in that room is laser focused on one thing, and it's live or die. It's it's actually something where you know if they don't succeed, if you don't get the customers, if you don't get that product shipped, and if it's not happening. You're not gonna, you're not gonna make it. So that's why I think startups will win. I think there's something to be said for the fear and the constraints that startups have, and and how can you have that in a corporate environment? But uh, how can you get the sponsorship? It's a good mix and great food for thought for anybody uh, working uh, in, in innovation in banks or even in fintechs generally. Is use the fear. Um, alrighty, I'm going to move us to the next story, and this one comes from the FT, and this was about um, banks apparently are going to book more than 50 billion US dollars against bad loans. Uh, so the US and European banks are on track to book more than 50 billion dollars worth of charges on souring loans in the first quarter. Um, the biggest such provision since the, obviously, since the financial crisis and US banks have been the most cautious, boosting their reserves for potential bad loans by 350% in Q1 2019, while European lenders have increased provisions by 269%. HSBC was the most pessimistic in its tone during its results presentation, taking $3 billion in initial provisions and warning losses could reach $11 billion this year. Barclays at 2.1 billion, RBS at 800 million, uh, and Deutsche Bank raised eyebrows with just 500 million. Sarah, I'm going to throw it to you. I mean, sign of the times, right? Not big surprises here, or was there anything that really stood out to you? I mean, the fact that they have upped their uh, their provisions is no surprise. Um, one would one would be severely worried had they not. Um, I I couldn't possibly comment on the the numbers and the percentages. It's not an area of expertise of mine. I do wonder if you know Deutsche Bank raising eyebrows is possibly because Deutsche Bank is quite um, from a consumer level uh, quite 
German uh, and like it's not an international bank in that sense on a, on a retail brand. And I do wonder if because Germany has been very, very lightly affected, they they don't foresee the impact being as big. But I, I really don't know if that's the case. If anybody wants to tell me that I'm completely wrong, then then please do. Um, the one thing I did want to bring up was obviously it's not just the, well, the, the sorry, the one thing I did want to bring up is that the large banks can make these provisions, um, but you know we're already seeing evidence of some of the fintechs that work in the lending space being hit by defaults, which sort of gives us an insight of quite you know perhaps how bad this is going to be. Um, so I did a, a quick bit of research or a, a quick look. Um, so rate setter in the UK has reduced its interest rate for investors by fifty percent. Um, because it reckons defaults are going to go up so much. Um, and on deck in the US, which is another sort of alternative lender, if you like, um, the much, much bigger, um, said that at the end of 2019, 11% of its loans were in some stage of delinquency. But by March 31st, that metric had ridden to 27%. By the end of April, approximately 45% of on deck loans were in some stage of delinquency. So, um, you know, whilst it's a sort of a slightly different take on the story, I just think that those, those, that data or those data give you an insight into perhaps just how bad it's going to be. Um, and, you know, maybe that gives you some insight into just how prepared the banks needed to be. Wow. Yeah. It really significant point, Sarah. I think the the sort of the, the shock and all of us having to be at home is very different to that washing its way through the economy and the impact on people's lives. I mean, Bailey, with what you guys do at Toucan, um, I, I wonder what you guys are seeing and, and, um, and how that links to the story as well. Yeah, it's heartbreaking, isn't it? Um, because behind these numbers are millions of people who might default on loans and businesses that might default on loans and then have to lose staff and, and shut their, their doors. And the reality is that we're living in a time when we were already um, in, in pretty, we had a lot of debt on our, our, our books as an economy. Um, just as an example, you know, in the UK, we, we before the crisis had a record £73 billion worth of credit card debt. Uh, and that was at interest rates higher than, than in 2008. So that's just one example of consumer-facing um, debt that I can see just being a real um, time bomb over the next few months. So we at Tukin help the people that the banks call vulnerable customers with a product that helps them with third-party access. So people like carers and families who need to care for people around them. And vulnerable customers and the, the strategy around vulnerable customers is something that we've been um, party to at um, charity level and uh, advising people in government and, and um, the regulator. So unfortunately, we do um, have a view on how charities are just saying huge numbers of people. Debt charities, unfortunately, have massive in, influx of people um, coming to them at the moment there are issues with defaults. Um, there are issues with mental health having an impact on that as well. And um, the regulator has acted very quickly. But I think the issue that we're quickly going to see over the next few months as we come out of lockdown is what happens when the measures that they've put in place start to um, stop. What happens when people's mortgage holidays um, actually are no longer there? How can we make sure that furloughed employees are going back to a job that's secure and safe and, and businesses have the cash flow to pay for them. Um, I, and I, I do think we need to be preparing ourselves for a pretty bad, um, bad, bad economy in the, in the next six to, to nine months. 
No, Bailey, I think several words, but I think that's what the story um, really speaks to. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff happening out there for sure. I mean, uh, Sarah was involved, as we say, in the 11FS research report, which had some of these impacts on financial services, of course, info.11fs.com forward slash COVID-19. Um, but part of the thesis of that was you've got the initial kind of uh, hit and then you've got this sort of uh, this period of turbulence in the middle and it feels like we're in the tra- transition from the first sort of shock into that that turbulent period as people start to realize the ramifications and and, and as, as we get into that uh, James as well away from uh, the world of, of consumers of course this is this is happening for businesses as well um, and I guess uh, where you guys are and um, mostly with an APAC um, perspective um, you know can you give us some insights as to what you're seeing in your own business and to what you've what you've seen in the client base yeah absolutely I think I think on this story specifically I think from the from the bank side there's there's no harm in being cautious I think what happened in 2008 was a bit of a wake-up call for banks who had enjoyed 20 30 40 years um, of boom and they've not had to put these provisions in place and what we've seen over the past 12 years is um, they have a better understanding of the risk in the business and what might happen in terms of a short-term shock. I think the interesting thing here is I saw today the uh, Bank of England, their GDP, GDP report, said there's been a contraction of 14%, but then they're expecting 15% uh, rise next year. So 1% up by the end of 2021. So I guess what the banks are doing here with these bad loans is basically writing off 2020. And ensuring that the capital, the worst case scenario, they account for. I'm not sure what Deutsche Bank's doing. Um, like Sarah says, perhaps because they haven't had that impact in in Germany, and they have really contracted back to Germany um, since the financial crisis. Um, in terms of our business and and the APAC region, um, I think one thing is that nowhere is um, out of reach of this pandemic. Nowhere has not been affected. Um, we have large offices in, in China, Hong Kong, um, and, and Melbourne. So our teams in China went through the, the lockdown and the contraction of business probably probably two months ago now, just after Chinese New Year. And they're all back in the office now, and, and they're working again, and things are getting back to normal. So I think that also shows a path for Europe and the US in terms of what could the future look like. Um, I agree with Bailey, the next six to nine months are going to be are going to be rocky as we sort of come out out of this, and I don't think it's going to be that sharp V-shaped recovery. I think it's probably going to be more like a, a long U-shape at the bottom. Um, but things will return to normal. This is not the same as 2008. This is not you know 20 or 30 years of um, loans and debts and CDOs piling up. This is a short-term shutdown where hopefully when we reopen, Things may not be normal. I don't believe there is a normal anymore after what we've seen over the past 10 years, but um, as normal as it can be, um, hopefully by uh, this time next year. Thank you, James. I mean, Sarah, there's definitely uh, something to be said for what James is saying there about the, uh, the, the this is a fundamentally different crisis. It, the banks are 
completely uh, a better capitalized uh, provisioning better and and indeed there's a sub story here about um the 100% government backed bounce back loans that we we sort of briefly covered in last week's show are now live um Lloyd said applications for those are live um and they've uh, had loans totaling more than a billion pounds in just a couple of days HSBC had 34,000 applications by 4 p.m. in the first day and uh, had agreed to lend out 650 million and Barclays had approved over 32,000 loans and just a refresher this loan scheme offers the UK's smallest firms uh, loans worth 25% of turnover up to 50,000 pounds those loans are a 100% guaranteed by the government uh, at an interest rate of 2.5% so Sarah um, there was some criticism of banks not being able to get the the Siebel's uh, loans out, but this seems to have happened pretty quickly. Like credit where it's due, things can happen quickly when they need to in some cases, and the banks are better capitalized this time around. Maybe they can play a role in getting us all out of this. Yeah, I mean, I think there's obviously a few things to unpick here. I mean, one, um, I quite, from what I understand, um, that those in charge of this scheme, of, of implementing this scheme, learned from Siebel's, um, and this is, you know, a fast track scheme. It is just one online form. So, you know, you are, it's either a yes or a no. Um, Obviously, that means that, you know, there are questions over the criteria that's that's being used. One would assume they are very, very uh, slim, um, you know, kind of in terms of, of getting credit history, uh, given A, the circumstances and B, the speed at which things are being approved. Um, a slight concern that only eight providers can, can actually issue these loans at the moment. And apparently they are generally prioritizing their own business account holders. And the problem with that um, is that many people who own the smallest of small businesses don't have a business account. They have their, their personal account, their current account, which means that though people who run those businesses might not actually be able to access them. Um, so, sorry, what I've done there is talk be the downer, talk about the downsides. The plus side, as you mentioned, yes, it's come out very quickly. Yes, they seem to be getting things processed. Um, I saw an, an anecdote earlier, somebody from Santander said it took three days from actually applying to having the money in their account. Um, I don't know if, if any you know bank out there can beat it, but that is very, very impressive for any kind of loan to be processed and, and funded by um, a large bank. So yes, plus sides, things can happen quickly when you want them to. Um, it shows the appetite, actually, for uh, credit among these small businesses out there, which is po- possibly a different story. Um, but the fact they want it, that they're taking it up, you know, good thing. Um, some negatives, I think, that probably still have to be worked out. Um, and my understanding of it as well is that, you know, whilst the banks can do this because they are better capitalised than, than last time, um, it's 100% backed. So they kind of have much more incentive to do it. C-Bills was only 80% backed and the loans were bigger, so they stood to lose more. So sorry, that's just a brain dump of all my thoughts on this. I hope I hope there's something you can unpick in there. No, I really love that last point about um, there are some fundamental differences. Like the overall risk surface here for banks was dramatically reduced. One, the size of the loans were smaller. Two, the uh, level of backing from the government was also almost complete. So they the the risk surface is tiny, and and there are then some compliance risks around how much of this will end up being fraudulent. But that will come out in the wash. And I think the calculus here is the net positive is probably better and there may be some wash up thereafter and it's limited again by the value and there's something there's a lesson here for good times as well as as the the crisis times we're in which is yeah you know, there are sensible limits and controls you can put in place uh, as you're testing things or as you're doing things in a smaller way and you can take that to you know 
extremes at both sides, which is you, know, you can start to break into a customer in a really small way, but historically, you know, the, the KYC AML requirements were all or nothing rather than gradual. And, and actually, there's something to be said for this single form that only does one thing with one type of loan um, that has a reduced risk surface. Maybe maybe that becomes a trend that, that people pick up and learn from. Um, I'm going to just uh, give Bailey the last word on this before we move on. Um, you know, what are your um, positives about this story, if there are any? Um, I mean, it is good that money has been able to get into people's bank accounts, and hopefully that's going to save jobs, and that's great. I think the thing to bear in mind is that this is still a loan. Um, businesses don't have to repay for the first 12 months these loans, but they will have to repay. And in, in the vast majority of cases, you know, they're going to have to see more revenue coming in once lockdown comes out than they saw before in order to make these loan repayments. So as consumers, I suppose all of us who still have jobs have a duty now to go out and spend money. That's that's my upbeat ending. And with <laughs> ideally with local small businesses, let's let's um, save my local.co.uk. Um, listen, we will be back very shortly. Let's take a quick break. This episode of Fintech Insider is brought to you by MyTech, combining the world's best forensic experts with the industry's most advanced technology only. MyTech delivers banking grade identity verification with the highest possible assurance levels, massively reducing risk, fraud and costs. Discover more at mytechsystems.com. This episode is also brought to you by Equinix. Equinix is the world's largest data center and co-location provider, enabling the fastest application performance, lowest latency, and a digital ecosystem for financial services. Its platform of 200 plus data centers worldwide protects, connects, and empowers the mission-critical infrastructure for over 10,000 businesses. Find out more at equinix.com. Okay, now back to the news, and we're going to take a look at some of the other stories happening around the world, starting with this one here. And uh, wow, this was a biggie. So Robinhood raised $280 million worth of Series F funding, pushing its valuation to $8.3 billion US dollars. A story comes from TechCrunch. This matches former headlines early in the year that Robinhood was hunting for a nine-figure round to gain a valuation of uh, $8 billion. Uh, Robinhood made headlines of March, of course, with less fortuitous news, uh, three outages in two weeks, meaning that customers were unable to trade during uh, specific hours. And that was uh, in a very volatile time in the market. So a lot of people were very annoyed by that. The stability of apps that handle your money is especially important right now as people try and get their financial health in order and individuals are investing and saving more than ever during this pandemic. Um, Robinhood has spent time in the last few weeks figuring out how, how to handle those increases in usage. And this new capital will be used to build out some of those capabilities and prevent future crashes. Robinhood has added more than 3 million accounts this year alone and recorded around $60 million in revenue in March three times its February result. 3x revenue in a month. That's pretty significant. They later also said March saw them more than 10x the increase in net deposits when compared to the monthly average it set in the last quarter of 2019. I mean, that's significant growth in the use of their business. Do you think, Sarah, though, there's a connection between this growth in their business and the round, or was the round already happening? Uh, I suspect the round was already happening, to be uh, blunt. Um, they, they, they are not, uh, well, Robinhood is not the only investment platform we've seen raise money recently. Um, so there's a couple that I think are quite clear that the, um, the the negotiations were in the works before COVID. Robinhood is one. I think Stash, which raised $112 million uh, recently, is another. I think that they just, it's 
really, this is going to sound perverse, lucky timing for them. Um, so these platforms are, are doing incredibly well right now. There's a, a few reasons for that. You've got people who want to make the most of the volatility. You've also got um, some people, and, and I should say it's very much some people based on the previous story who actually have more disposable income now because they're not socializing, they're not traveling, they're not um, commuting. So they've, they've got more money to invest in these platforms, which means investors aren't going to walk away from that right now, are they? I mean, this, this is a really good bet as far as they're concerned. Um, I just wanted to mention a couple of other platforms in this space that have recently raised, um, but I think it is more um, the result of, of, of recent changes in, in customer behavior. Um, so here in the UK, we have Chip that just crowdfunded at 2.6 million pounds and Free Trade, which has gone ahead with a decision to crowdfund. Uh, I think it was the decision was made earlier this week off the back of COVID. So they're looking to raise a million um, from crowdfunding. Um, a couple of things there. Obviously, crowdfunding is much quicker to get off the ground than a huge multi-billion dollar, multi-million dollar uh, funding round from a VC. Um, but I think the point I'm making is that there are two different types of raises going on right now. There are those that were already in the works before this, and there are those that are businesses reacting quickly to capitalize on this. Um, and I think we should be careful when we're looking at rounds and valuations that happen in the first quarter of this year um, about separating out which is which. Yeah, there's almost two stories here, isn't there, Sarah? There's the story about while Robinhood raised a big round, but the, there's the other story, which is look at Robinhood's revenue on a monthly basis. That's quite significant, and how sustainable is that? Um, you know, sort of uh, is this a, is this temporary flash in the pan? And we've seen a real change in consumer behaviour towards uh, saving much, much more. Um, and as you say, chip. Plum, Moneybox, many at Stash and many others are seeing that across the industry. And I wonder for incumbents, you know, are they seeing the same or are they able to offer? I know they're seeing the same level of growth if they don't have those digital digital offerings. Can I just, before someone else chips in, I did, uh, just when I was looking at this, I looked at some of the UK providers of um, self-directed investment and Lloyd's, Lloyd's Banking Group in this country, had to shut um, it's uh, it's digital onboarding for new customers for for self directed investment because they just didn't have the staff to cope um, because they were too busy handling other customer service queries. Um, but you know, one insight there is that the big guys can't keep up and they are really going to lose out. Well, this is a once in a generation opportunity. I mean, it's, it's it sounds capitalist and 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 almost quite crude, but uh, to acquire customers to a savings and investment platform, and and maybe many organisations by not being able to automate that, when there is a real customer appetite for saving, and let's face it. Um, that that's absolutely going to be crucial for a lot of businesses. Um, but then they may be missing out on that opportunity. Um, Bailey, I'm going to throw it to you, though. How do you feel about something like Robinhood being um, being something in this time versus, say, uh, a traditional savings account? Do, is there some some risk here that consumers may may take on more risk than than they can afford to um, with with these sort of day trading immediate um, sort of apps? Yeah, there absolutely is, but. Um... You know, it's a cool product. Uh, free trade's a cool product. I don't know about a lot of the other investment apps, but um, if it gets people who weren't investing before interested in, in investing, I think that's a really good thing if they can afford to do that. Um, I think the key here is about, you know, is it a long-term um, piece? Are, are the consumers who use these apps are going to going to stick with it for the 20 or 30 years that it takes to really make a good return? Um, or is it going to be something that you download, you have fun with, you play around with, and then maybe in a year or two, it becomes a bit boring? Um, but no, I'm, I'm all for this. You've got to love a Series F. Uh, and, you know, 
I, I'm excited about it coming to the UK. Um, I think it was meant to come to the UK pretty recently, so hopefully it won't be too far off. Yeah, indeed. I wonder if internal resources got diverted, given the volume they're having in the US. Um, I, I can only speculate, but I imagine that might be the case. Uh, it's interesting. I'm, I'm kind of waiting for the first Series S or Series T. It's going to be a matter of time until we run out of the alphabet for these the, these funding rounds. Um, James, what were your thoughts when you saw this? I mean, um, good time to be in savings and investments or, you know, sort of importance of platform stability. What, what, what came to you? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's interesting when you... We saw the market dip due to coronavirus. I mean, firstly, the interesting thing was it didn't happen sooner when um, uh, COVID-19 uh, became clear that it was quite a significant event in um, in China and it was um, you know spreading throughout APAC. It was surprising it took so long to hit the markets. But when it did, I mean, what a, what a drop we saw. And I think for people jumping in the market now, who are probably chatting to their friends and saying a great time to get in the market, they need to look at the context. And we, I think we're in February, we were in the longest bull run of the S&P 500. Um, so it coming off 20%, it's, it's still, you know, um, we're still basically in, the, in a bull market in historical terms. So if people are jumping in now, and like Bailey says, they're going to hold it for 20 or 30 years, brilliant. If they're going to jump in now and we drop another 10% and then they sell it because they get nervous, the only people who are going to win out there are, Robin Hood or Stash or whoever. So it's kind of, you know, without that longer term view or that education around the actual stock market and what you're doing with your funds, um, you know, you can open accounts quickly and get your money in. What are you actually buying? And do you actually understand the the risk there? Do, do people have the financial literacy? Are they trying to buy the dip thinking things are cheap? And actually, in historical context, maybe they're not. Uh, I think those are really good points. And uh, yeah, it's, it's really important. Um, Matt, very quickly, because um, we're, we're up against it on time, just um, one or two thoughts of when you saw this story. Yeah, so in really touching upon the points that were already made, it's certainly an interesting time when it comes to investing. And the question that you have to ask is, those that are jumping in, are they jumping in ready to jump out? Or is this trying to use a new platform for long-term investing? And so I guess when I, when I first saw this news, and I go back to profitability, the thing that, that worries me is, you know, this is a, an abundant raise. Uh, yes, revenues have, have grown substantially, but is, are, is this taking on too much debt not to sustain a growing amount of revenues? And thus, although revenues seem high, a customer base is growing. Is that a long-term customer base? And when you start to look at a potential net debt to EBITDA type of ratio, how would this company stand up? What would the long-term net present value be of Robinhood? Um, so, you know, is this a short-term cyclical type of, of trend or is this something that they can sustain? So I think for me, looking at it, it's it's a bit difficult to to understand who you know where are these new investors coming from? Will they be long term investors in a new platform, or when things start to subside, will they go back? Yeah, I think one of the main investors was Sequoia, and Sequoia have an amazing track record when it comes to um, sort of Silicon Valley investors, and they it was equity, not debt. Um, so uh, the Sequoia will be kind of alongside them to to try and push this and make it a success. And you know uh, that is the the jury's out on will these things be long term sustainable revenue. But uh, volatility is good if you're in the business of trading. But uh, let's keep watching it. Robinhood are one of the darlings at the moment, and there's lots uh, lots to see, and I'm sure we haven't heard the last from them. Um, next story this week. 
uh, comes from uh, TechCrunch, and this was about Visa and Safaricom partnering on M-Pesa. So Visa have just connected to Africa's most powerful mobile payments network. They've announced a partnership with Kenya's telecom Safaricom and the M-Pesa mobile money product. The arrangement opens up M-Pesa's own extensive financial services network in East Africa to Visa's global merchant and card network across 200 countries. The two companies will also collaborate on the development of products that will support the release of digital payments to M-Pesa customers, according to the Safaricom press release. But the partnership is, of course, still subject to regulatory approval. Uh, just for context, M-Pesa is Africa's largest payments platform with 40 million users in Kenya, Tanzania, Lesotho, and the Democratic Republic of Congo, Ghana, Mozambique, and Egypt. It processes over a billion transactions every month. To find out more, we heard from Otto Williams, who's Vice President and Head of Strategic Partnerships and Fintechs and Ventures for Visa in CEMEA. Hi, I'm Otto Williams, and I lead Visa Strategic Partnerships, Fintech, and Ventures Group in our Central Eastern Europe, Middle East, and Africa region. We at Visa are very excited to have entered a strategic partnership with Safaricom and look forward to bringing many benefits to M-Pesa and Visa consumers and merchants. We're looking forward to connecting the millions of M-Pesa merchants and consumers with Visa's global network. And through this, eliminate barriers that have hindered consumers and businesses from taking full advantage of global e-commerce. Africa is a key part of Visa's strategy, and this move is a reinforcement of our commitment to providing secure and convenient cashless payment solutions that drive financial inclusion while helping enable digital payments for the millions of micro and small merchants across the continent. Oh, thank you very much to also for joining us on the show and giving us that soundbite. Um, I think, uh, Matt, you know, there's there's a lot to be said for uh, innovation in emerging markets and this partnership. You know, Visa, a very well-established brand, M-Pace has been around since 2005. Uh, what were your initial thoughts when you saw this? Are they moving towards that super app for Africa? We've seen Tencent, WeChat, and a few others look at the look at the region. Is is it that move, or is it um, is it you know, sort of payments focused, or, or what might be the motives here? So I, I look at it it's very similar to, and, and I know that the offerings are different, um, but, but I certainly look at it no different than, say, a PayPal and, and a lot of what PayPal Ventures is looking to achieve and trying to really go after underserved and, and underbanked uh, individuals. And I think Africa has certainly been a target for, for quite some time. So when I look at this and, and you look at the track record of, of both those organizations, this to me certainly looks like the opportunity of trying to really compete and open up a new market in, in emerging markets, which which quite frankly uh, doesn't have enough of that coverage and and certainly the technology investment within that region. So I certainly looked at it to, to be a, a true player and looking to be a true player within that region. Indeed. Um, Bailey, what were your thoughts? What a coup for Visa, right? They've uh, They've just unlocked possibly the ability to access this entire new massive, massive market and growing. Um, yeah, it feels like a good thing for both people using the products and services in, in Africa and, and also for Visa, so good on them. Yeah, mobile money was a thing in Africa long before it was in Europe and, and APAC. Um, and, uh, you know, 
M-Pesa is the OG of a lot of this stuff. So well done Visa for, for getting that together with them and well done M-Pesa for potentially helping expand trade in and out of uh, a, a lot of its regions. I mean, James, you deal a lot with, with cross-border. Is there an element of cross-border there, remittances possibly? What what are your thoughts you know, from, a, from a commerce standpoint as well? Yes, absolutely. So we mentioned WeChat and Tencent and I spend most of my day on WeChat speaking to my team in, in China. So... And when I go to China, everyone uses WeChat. So it's very powerful to have one, I suppose, um, app to cover the whole um, whole continent. And I think that's a key point here. Africa is a continent, not a country. So in in China, we have one country, one system. Um, everyone does WeChat app, and it's all standardized. In Africa, you have many different countries, and getting user adoption is going to be very different in, say, um, Kenya than it is in Egypt or Lesotho. So that's kind of, I think, going to be the challenge as they roll this out, is how, if they want to build a super app across the continent of Africa, how do they market that in each country? Because it's going to have different capabilities and it's going to have different, I suppose, a marketing push in each uh, territory. But broadly speaking, I think anything which unlocks the whole continent's, I suppose, commerce, e-commerce platforms to do more business, it's going to be very, very powerful. Um, we've always seen that when technology advances around the world, the, the newest region basically shortcuts everything. So in China, they shortcutted credit cards. So we're not dealing with credit cards, straight to mobile money. I think in Africa, we'll probably see an advancement of that um, and cut out you know, current accounts, credit cards, and go straight to something like Mpesa. Indeed. M-Pesa has, of course, been around since 2005 and has always worked on super low-cost, super low-powered devices. Sarah, is there a serious financial inclusion angle here, and and uh, what might that be? Yeah, I mean, so first of all, I just wanted to mention how quickly this has happened. So I was confused when I saw this story because I was like, Safaricom only just bought M-Pesa. So I think the news was announced like literally a month ago, um, and now we're on to a partnership with Visa. So I can only assume that all of this was in the works, in the background. Um, I had to go back and sort of double check that I wasn't going slightly mad, which is entirely possible. Um, but on the financial inclusion piece, I, I think it's almost more than financial inclusion. I think it's almost... Um, I don't know what what the quite uh, quite what the word is, but e-commerce is such a big part of almost every continent other than Africa. This ability to go online, buy what you want, when you want it, um, and that gives you access to so many more goods, products, and services. It gives you more choices as a consumer. It also means that prices of things are driven down. There's more competition in the market. Now, I see this. Um, I agree with all the points that we made previously, um, but I think it's almost more than financial inclusion. It's almost somehow. Um, inclusion in a phenomenon that the rest of the world's been doing for a while and Africa by nature of kind of, well, for a lot of the countries in Africa, not all of them by any extent, you know, places like Egypt have huge e-commerce businesses, um, industries, but for other parts of Africa, it's, it's inclusion to sort of, um, maybe a, a, a broader a, a broader consumer society and a broader way of accessing goods and services that will benefit consumers in the long run. And potentially the businesses that are able to sell to, to a broader audience. Oh, of course. Yes, absolutely. You know, you're looking at all the micro merchants and, and, and small merchants um, across Africa, you know, whichever country they're in. I'm sure the idea of being able to sell to somebody anywhere else in the world is hugely appealing to them. Absolutely. Well, here's hoping we see lots of innovation coming off the back of this. Uh, James, one last point from you before we move on. Yeah, I think just one last point on the MPs point. I think, you know, it's, it is a continent of entrepreneurs. And I think wherever you see someone come out with a great product, which hopefully an MPs will do, there's going to be rife competition. 
So I think local players are going to challenge this and it's not going to be a um, blanket, you know, super app. I think you're going to see lots of different local um, commerce platforms or payment companies come out of the woodwork over the next five to ten years. Yeah, indeed. Well, there are, of course, many competing mobile money networks across Africa and and great piece of work by the Gates Foundation to try and create a standard to connect all of those called Mojo Loop. So we will, of course, keep watching all of this. Um, we are going to move on now. And as we're getting towards the end of the show, just to round up some of the other stories from the week that we don't have time to cover, um, there's so much happening and we can't cover it all. But these stories did deserve a shout out. Um, Sarah, did you want to start with one? Sure, yeah. So the first one I have is that Tencent has bought a stake in Afterpay. Um, So we got this from Finextra. It was very widely reported. Um, Chinese tech giant Tencent has bought a 5% stake worth around 39 million Australian dollars um, in Australian buy now, pay later firm Afterpay. This may be why I was given this story. Um, The buy now, pay later model has seen huge growth in recent years, propelling Afterpay to a market capitalization of over 8 billion Australian dollars on the ASX. The firm has been building up its presence in the US and it also operates in the UK under the ClearPay brand. Um, and last month, Tencent rival Ant Financial invested an undisclosed amount in Swedish buy now, pay later brand Klarna. Indeed. And of course, a story this week as well, we didn't have much time to cover is Revolut launching their licensed bank in Lithuania. It's 300,000 Lithuanian customers can now deposit their salaries and other funds in deposit protected bank accounts and upgrade from e-money accounts. Revolut says it will also passport its Lithuanian banking license to other Central and Eastern European countries later in the year, with Lithuania acting as its hub for the region. Uh, Probably in a surprise to no one, the strong customer authentication deadline in the UK has been extended by six months. The UK's Financial Conduct Authority is to delay the implementation of strong customer authentication rules in an effort to minimise disruption to consumers and merchants during the ongoing COVID-19 crisis. The SCA rules demand a two-step verification process for all online purchases over €30, and the rollout date will now be pushed back from 14th of March 2021 to 14th of September 2021. The FCA's ruling is likely to be followed by national authorities across Europe. And in another thing that's probably not a massive surprise, uh, apparently COVID-19 is impacting consumer payment preferences, according to a survey from Paysafe and Sapio Research, who surveyed more than 8,000 consumers across the US, UK, Canada and Europe between the 8th and 15th of April this year. So globally, 18% of consumers said that they are now shopping online for the first time due to COVID-19. This increases to 25% in the US and 21% in the UK. And 56% of all consumers say that they have completed an online transaction using a payment method that is new to them since the outbreak of COVID-19. But of course, we couldn't finish uh, without bringing you one of the silliest stories of this week. And of course, it's time for our And Finally. So And Finally, story from, well, Fox News, of course. Louisiana cops are on the search for an aggressive chicken who was breaking social distancing and terrorizing bank patrons. Louisiana police are on a hunt for this aggressive chicken who reportedly is terrorizing bank patrons and getting cash out of the drive through ATM amid the state's coronavirus lockdown. Uh, the Walker Police Department said on Facebook that their officers responded within a couple of minutes to the call uh, to the bank to find the chicken apparently uh, anticipated the imminent arrival of law enforcement and fled on foot from the scene absolutely loved this were they playing was the chicken playing chicken with the police here what was going on 
can I can I just ask a question here, which I actually think is quite important. Was this a chicken or was this a rooster? Because if anybody has ever seen a really angry rooster, those things are vicious. They literally have weapons on their legs. So I'm just going to say that if this is, you know, lost in translation somewhere and it was a rooster, I can see why people were scared. Mm, good point. I mean, there's something about a, an angry chicken um, that just <laughs> that just sounds like terrorizing people at an ATM. It's the last thing you want during a global pandemic. Like, it's hard enough to get cash anyway at this point in time. Yeah, I mean, I should say I say that from the perspective of somebody who grew up in the countryside. Um, I'm sure that those, you know, nuances are perhaps not why we're discussing the story. Uh, Bailey, have you ever been terrorized by a chicken at an ATM? I haven't, no. Uh, I'll look forward to that next time I go to an ATM, which uh, hasn't been for a while and I don't anticipate doing in, in for a while. Um, yeah. James, did you suspect foul play here? Um, no. <laughs> well, it's interesting about the story is it doesn't seem to, they didn't see the chicken, right? The chicken had disappeared by the time they arrived. So I think maybe Fox News are um, just trying to get a break from uh, coronavirus. Um, maybe it was clickbait but it's still it's still the headline of the year Uh, (laughs) all right that wraps up this week's news show thank you so much to all of our guests where can people find out more about you bailey so i'm on twitter at bailey talks and you can find out more about toucan at usetoucan.com and james you can find me on linkedin and i think that's enough (laughs) and matt same thing uh linkedin for me brilliant and sarah you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. And as for me, you can find me on Twitter at SYTaylor or email me simon at 11fs.com. Thank you for listening. And if you like what you've heard, please do subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us to make the show better and it helps others find it too. Speaking of which, if you know somebody who loves fintech who isn't listening to Fintech Insider, do pass it along. Whether you're out taking your daily exercise or whatever you're doing, tell them about the show. Even if for, even if you're keeping socially distant, you can still tell them, call them, whatever. All right. If you have any suggestions or feedback, do find us on social media or search for 11FS Fintech Insider or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thank you so much and goodbye for now.